What's up, everyone? Welcome to Weekends. Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila with you. Nando, how are you? Doing well, doing very, very well. Excited for the Euros, although I just saw right before we started the show, uh, there's a game going on right now, a match between Denmark and Finland, and one of the Danish players, their biggest star, Christian Eriksen, just collapsed and looks like he may have had a heart attack. So we what? Don't, we don't... Yeah, like in the middle of the game, he just like collapsed. Jesus. So that's ongoing. Um, so maybe people in the chat um, will keep it updated, but it's like a pretty scary situation because, you know, players have died in the past um, on the field. Jesus uh, Christ. Aren't they so, super yeah. young and healthy? How do they die from they heart are. attacks? Well, sometimes they have conditions that they don't know about, you know, like mm. some sort of g- genetic condition um and you know they're they're healthy and then all of a sudden their heart just gives out like that's yeah it's happened in in the past but uh yeah it's it was like literally like i just saw it 1 minute ago right before we went live dude it's been such a crazy week for news um i mean <laughs> i don't even know where to start i was thinking about what to bring up for our banter today and I mean, the week began with Kamala Harris telling Guatemalans, don't come, don't come. The White House throwing her under the bus over the way she handled interview questions by Lester Holt, um, you know, where, you know, she said that she hadn't been to the border. Obviously, the media starts to frame things from the right wing as if doing like a theatrical, you know, um, photo shoot or whatever at the border is going to solve our immigration problems like it was just an insane story and then it moves on to oh that wonderful exchange on the rising with um uh ryan grimm and i i don't know what the name of the oh, co-host yeah. is yeah About the where, Soviet um, Union. yeah that was a that was yeah. an interesting um exchange you know uh ryan grimm uh drawing attention to the fact that stalin helped defeat the nazis and uh, his co-host was really shocked by that. It's a viral clip. I'm sure many of you have already yeah. seen it. But it's just been a crazy week in news. I don't even know what to yeah. focus well, on Ilan Omar, The Ilan Omar situation. That's right. She's once again in the crosshairs of her own party. You know, it's just funny, like, uh, um, watching uh, the Democratic leadership discipline Ilan Omar with furious anger um, for stepping out of line. Uh, but, like, you know, mansion cinema. We just have to Thank respect you their views thank you yeah nothing can be done we have no leverage over them we can't do anything we can't do anything um it's just what i what i do what i do appreciate about the story though is that ilhan omar is not just kind of like bending to their will she's not preemptively apologizing for any she, she did nothing wrong she was asking how the united states proposes that an investigation be done in the potential war crimes of the Israeli government if the United States does not back the International Criminal Court and its probe into possible war crimes. So that was a totally legitimate question. And uh, she mentions not just uh, the Israeli government, of course, she mentions Hamas, she mentions the United States government and potential war crime, possible war crimes that we've uh, (laughs) engaged in. And so uh, Democrats were furious because they felt that uh, she was drawing comparisons between the Israeli government and Hamas. Um, and also some were upset that she was uh, calling attention to the United States and its war crimes as if our government has never committed war crimes. I mean, yeah. of course we have. Um, but she, you know, she's fighting back. And, and it's really nice to see that because oftentimes yeah. you see weak crap from Democrats and um 
you know, she's, she's strong. I, I stand with Ilhan. She never backs down and and she's right on this issue. Yeah, no, it's, it's, she's, you know, she's, she's remarkable in many ways. Um, You know, I, I just, I'm thinking about like 10 years ago, imagining someone like Ilhan Omar in, in Congress then, and it's just unimaginable. And, and just the, the, the degree to which she can, you know, channel so much hatred for her um it's 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 pretty remarkable i mean that just how quickly the structures of the media and power and the parties both parties just completely unite you know throw aside their differences to unite in bashing uh ilan omar it's it's pretty remarkable to see um so solidarity with ilan you know i hope she I hope she stays strong. I hope she doesn't uh, she doesn't cave to these attacks and to the pressure because uh, because she's absolutely right. She said nothing wrong. Like she just everything she said was completely correct. So when you have truth on your yeah. side, you know you you don't have to stand down. Absolutely. Well, later in the show today, uh, we will have Ronan Burtonshaw on to talk about um, the UK's Unite Labour uh, Union and uh, the upcoming leadership election they're going to have. He's going to help us break that down and why it's so important. So definitely stick around for that interview. But before we get to that and my decode, Nando, I'm super excited about your decode segment because you're going to focus on two different elections, that of Mexico and of Peru. Um, lots of good news all around and good yeah. news is hard to come by these days so take yep. it away all right well first well first before we do that anna uh we need to do oh, we need to pay the bills you know we need to pay we the do. bills we on do. this so um you know we need to thank our good partners at verso if you join the verso book club you get every new ebook that verso publishes each month as well as one or more books in the mail all verso book club members will also get 50 percent off everything on the website including the verso comrade tote bag for as long as you are a subscriber each member tier is 50 percent off for your first three months the comrade tier is only 20 dollars a month and if you join in june you'll get these four books the revenge of the real Post-Pandemic Politics by Benjamin Bratton, Clean Living Under Difficult Circumstances, Finding a Home in the Ruins of Modernism by Owen Hatherley, China in One Village, The Story of One Town and and the Changing World by Liang Hong, and Comrade, An Essay on Political Belonging by Jody Dean. That's right. All right. Verso, baby. Verso. All right. Well, um, if you want, I, now I can. Now that we've now that we've taken care yeah, of business, uh, yeah, we can get down to. This is, to, this is the moment to the I've been waiting for today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> get All right. to it. Well, there's been um, you know some good news coming out of Latin America, where it you know Latin America continues to be the one terrain where left politics has had some success of late, and this week saw a socialist victory in Peru. Socialist candidate Pedro Castillo overtook right-wing rival Keiko Fujimori in Peru's presidential contest in the official vote count Monday after a late surge of rural ballots. But the race still teeters on a knife's edge. The count put Castillo at 50.1% and Fujimori at 49.9%, with over 94% of the vote counted. The tight result could lead to days of uncertainty and tension. On Sunday night, Peruvian TV showed scuffles between supporters of the two candidates in Lima. 
That's right. The left-wing candidate, Pedro Castillo, came out of nowhere and achieved a stunning victory against the right-wing Keiko Fujimori, daughter of Peru's former dictator, Alberto Fujimori. Now, the election pitted two candidates with dramatically different visions for the country. The two offered sharply divergent visions for the country that went through three presidents in a week last year. Fujimori pledged to follow the free market model in the world's second largest copper producer. Castillo vowed to shake up the constitution and share mining profits with the poor. Now, it's hard to overstate just how surprising this victory was. Peru is one of the bastions of neoliberalism. And just before the elections, few Peruvians had ever heard of Pedro Castillo. To the extent that there was a left-of-center candidate that was well-known in Peru, it was a woman named Veronica Mendoza. And while Mendoza is on the left, I mean, she's even done an interview with Jacobin, the class and stylistic differences between her and Pedro Castillo couldn't be more stark. Mendoza was born and raised in the capital of Lima and was educated in France. Pedro Castillo, Pedro Castillo comes from the Andean region of Cajamarca, and he comes from the trade union movement, movement having led a successful teacher strike in 2017. He also ran a campaign that was proudly rooted in the working class. He did not try to shed his image as a rural worker in favor of a more polished city slicker type image. He ran on a simple yet effective slogan, no mas pobres en un país rico, no more poor people in a rich country. And that was his message throughout the campaign. And he promised to achieve that by reforming the country's constitution and to hammer home that message he would appear at campaign rallies and press events with a comically large pencil that he said would, he would use to rewrite the Constitution. Gracias a usted, mi estimada Juliana. Gracias. Honroso de estar en este espacio para saludar a usted, a su tribuna y al pueblo peruano. Con el lápiz siempre en la mano usted. Sí, yo creo que esta es la verdadera herramienta para sacar adelante al país. El Perú no necesita látigos, no necesita fusiles, necesita... Eh, el lápiz, una herramienta de la cultura de la educación. Con esta vamos a escribir la nueva constitución hecha por el pueblo, mi estimado Julián. Es lo que estamos planteando en el país. That's right. In the video, he talks about how Peru doesn't need the whip or the rifle. They need the pencil because it is an instrument of education and culture. And with it, they will write the new constitution, a constitution written by the people. This message resonated with many Peruvians because the current constitution which was imposed by the former dictator Fujimori after his shocking autogolpe, or self-coup, in 1993, basically enshrines neoliberal economic policies. According to an analysis by political analyst Andrea Moncada in America's Quarterly, quote, Castillo wants to call for a new, for national referendum to approve the creation of a constitutional assembly that would then draft a new constitution. His focus on the constitution follows one main goal, to change its economic chapter. As it is currently written, the state can only carry out business when authorized by specific legislation and when it is in the national interest to do so. The objective, then, is to modify this chapter so that the government is able to, for example, nationalize the mining and energy sectors or to unilaterally modify contracts with corporations so that they pay more taxes. This would be a massive change in a country that has been one of the main stalwarts of neoliberalism in the region. I mean, to understand, to understand it, we have to go back to the 1990s when neoliberalism came to Peru by the hand of Fujimori and the IMF. Fujimori won an election in 1990 in a massive upset against Mario Vargas Llosa, the famous novelist who would go on to win the Nobel Prize in literature in 2010. Vargas Llosa was the favorite in that election, and he ran on a platform of neoliberalism. 
while Alberto Fujimori, an outsider, ran against that platform. However, just days after taking office, he implemented neoliberalism. According to Gerardo Renica and Jacobin, quote, Fujimori adopted a two-pronged strategy, an IMF-inspired economic stabilization program and a counterinsurgency campaign informed by the Cold War national security doctrine. In a now familiar pattern that Naomi Klein has described as disaster capitalism, Fujimori announced a severe austerity program known as Fuji Shock a few days after taking office in early August 1990. The package eliminated price subsidies and social spending while drastically raising interest rates and taxes. A majority of Peruvians were thrown into absolute poverty and only 8% of the adult population remained fully employed. Farmers in the tropical valleys on the eastern slopes of the Andes turned to growing coca as a way to survive. Now, Fujimori could be described as a neoliberal populist dictator. When his Congress tried to resist the economic program, he allied with the military and business leaders to dissolve the Peruvian Congress and take more power for himself. This was called, at the time, the Autogolpe, or the Fujigolpe. You can see a pattern here. Fujimori then ran Peru with an iron fist, using death squads to murder thousands of his political opponents and sterilizing as many as 270,000 indigenous women. Think about that. He was finally defeated in 2000 after 10 years in power. He would flee to Japan to escape justice for various crimes, but in 2009, he was sentenced to prison for human rights abuses. Former Peruvian President Alberto Fujimori has been convicted of murder and kidnapping in connection to death squad activities that took place during his autocratic 10-year reign. Fujimori was calm, waving to friends, and writing in a notebook as a special tribunal ruled there was no question he authorized the creation of the unit, which killed at least 50 people during a 15-month period. The 70-year-old was then sentenced to 25 years in prison. So yeah, while Fujimori himself was sent to prison... Fujimorismo remained alive and well in Peru, mainly through the figure of his daughter, Keiko Fujimori. Keiko actually became the official first lady of Peru when she was 19, as her mother, Alberto's wife, left after a messy divorce in 1995, and he named her the first lady. And you know that expression, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? Well, I guess you could say that in this case, this Fujimori apple doesn't fall far from the tree. After a week-long hearing and a ruling lasting eight hours, Judge Richard Concepcion Caruancho handed three years in jail to Peru's most powerful opposition leader. He said there was a risk Keiko Fujimori could flee, while prosecutors investigate claims she ran a criminal organization within her political party. Criminal organization within her party. Wow, that sounds bad. So, yeah, the campaign uh, played out mostly along class and regional lines. According to Tony Wood in The Guardian, quote, the second round campaign at once dramatized and deepened Peru's stark socioeconomic, political and cultural divides. First, it drew attention to the gulf separating the more prosperous coast from the poorer highland regions, which have a larger indigenous population. Castillo, who is from the northern mining region of Cajamarca, drew his support overwhelmingly from the highlands, which saw few of the benefits of the boom years of the 2000s and the early 2010s. The Lima-based elite's attitude to such disparities is perhaps best captured by a phrase Fujimori let slip during a presidential debate held in rural Cajamarca in early May when she complained of having had to come all the way here 
She said afterwards this was a reference to the difficulty of the Germany. While Keiko did well along the coast, Castillo piled up huge margins in the highlands. This included astonishing victories in the regions most deeply affected by the armed conflict of the 1980s and 90s. He won 83% of the vote in Ayacucho and 89% of the vote in Puno, for instance. Now, much has been made of Castillo's left-but-not-woke campaign, melding economic redistribution with more conservative views on social issues. Here is an interview he gave during the campaign where he says he is personally against abortion, euthanasia, same-sex marriage, and marijuana legalization. ¿Usted legalizaría el aborto o no? Para nada. ¿La eutanasia? Eso va a ser, tra va, va, vamos a trasladar a la Asamblea Nacional Constituyente que yeah. se debata, pero personalmente no estoy de acuerdo. ¿La, la eutanasia? También que se traslade, pero tampoco estoy de acuerdo. ¿El matrimonio igualitario para personas del mismo sexo? Y peor todavía. ¿Legalizar la marihuana? Primero la familia. Estas dos, estas dos instituciones que son la familia y la escuela deben ir de la mano. ¿Legalizar la marihuana tampoco? Por supuesto que no. Al contrario, mm. lo que tenemos que hacer es que todos los derechos constitucionales, las organizaciones tienen que tener... Vamos, vamos a ver de qué manera Ajá. contribuimos al Perú para que los peruanos, la riqueza del país sea para todos los peruanos, mi estimado Jaime. ¿Usted se ha percatado que es un conservador? Yeah, at the end, the interviewer asks him if he realizes that he is a conservative. Now, it is worth pointing out that while he said that he is personally opposed to those things, he did say that he would respect whatever the new Constitutional Assembly decided to do in regards to those social issues. So, by the narrowest of margins, Peru has lurched left, as The Economist put it, which is great news, obviously. But there will be challenges ahead. For starters, Peru has had the highest COVID death rate in the world and is facing a deep crisis as a result. But beyond that, Pedro Castillo will face major restraints to implement his agenda. The first restraint is purely political. According to Andrea Moncada, while Castillo's message may have resonated with many Peruvians and caused panic in others, it's not clear that Castillo will be able to implement his policies in the manner in which he has promised. In fact, the most likely scenario for the country's next five years can be summarized in one word, desgobierno. He will face high levels of opposition from a newly elected Congress, which, which will be largely against him. Peru Libre won 37 out of 130 seats in the legislative, that's Pedro Castillo's party, and there will only be one other leftist party, Juntos por el Perú, which only obtained five seats. The other eight parliamentary caucuses are all center-right or right-wing, which will make up most of his promise, which will make most of his promises very difficult to uphold. So he has legislative barriers to his ambitious economic agenda, but there's also the threat that the opposition could simply remove him from power. Here's Moncada again. Quote, there's also the threat of presidential impeachment. Ever since Martin Vizcarra was deposed from the presidency in 2020 on the grounds of, quote, moral incapacity, impeaching a president has become a viable option for many Peruvians. So much so that during the campaign, many voters, unwilling to support Keiko Fujimori but still afraid of Castillo's policies, argued that it was better for him to be elected because he would be easier to remove from office a line of reasoning that no doubt many elected parliamentarians already have in mind, considering that it only takes 52 votes in Congress to admit a motion to discuss the possibility of impeachment. But beyond the immediate constraints put on him by Peru's political system, Castillo will face the structural constraints that any leftist leader faces when trying to institute reforms within a global capitalist system, namely the discipline imposed by capital flight. In the wake of Castillo's victory, the Financial Times was explicit about this. They wrote, quote, The prospect of a Castillo victory has sparked panic and capital flight among the Peruvian elite. 
The sol, the currency, has depreciated further against the dollar than any other currency in the world since the first round of voting in April when Castillo first emerged as a frontrunner. Dollar-sol transactions have jumped by about 20% in the past month. The sol, which has depreciated sharply in recent weeks in anticipation of a possible Castillo victory, lost more than 2% against the dollar to trade at an all-time low of 3.93. Peruvian stocks plummeted with the S&P BVL Peru General Index roughly 7% lower on the day in New York. The country's dollar bonds also came under pressure. The price of a note set to mature in 2050 dropped roughly 2%. To, 100, to 129 cents on the dollar. Another dollar bond maturing in 2031 filled more than 1% to 99 cents on the dollar. Quote, we anticipate volatility for Peruvian assets and note that demonstrations against results from both sides is a possibility given the tightness of the race, Citibank noted. And that is the game right there. It's so hard for left-wing leaders to implement their reforms because capital can discipline them can discipline them by essentially wrecking the economy in the short term. This is what happened with Allende in Chile, for example, with Nixon's famous order to, quote, make the economy scream. And Castillo is already being forced to play ball. This is from the same FT article. Quote, in an apparent bid to calm markets, Castillo's team issued a statement outlining its economic plans. It was far more moderate than the campaign manifesto of his party, Peru Libre. We have not considered nationalization, expropriation, confiscation of savings, exchange controls, price controls, or import prohibitions in our economic plan, the statement read. Castillo's team said it would respect the autonomy of the central bank, which has done a good job of keeping inflation low for more than two decades. It confirmed, however, that as president, Castillo would seek to raise taxes on mining companies to pay for health and education spending. Still, despite all of that, Castillo's victory is a stunning win for the Latin American left, which is having a bit of a comeback. AMLO's Morena party won a big victory in the midterm elections in Mexico. And we spoke about Chile and the left's victory in in electing a new constituent assembly to write a new constitution. The left resisted the right-wing coup in Bolivia. Colombia is seeing massive street protests against the right-wing neoliberal government. And there is, of course, the prospect of Lula returning to Brazil. The more victories, the better, as they will need regional cooperation to resist the, assault, the assaults from the more powerful North and the tyranny of financial capital. Castillo's victory is already being challenged, though. Uh, Keiko Fujimori alleges that the election was stolen. Does that sound familiar? And that there were 200,000 ballots that need to be invalidated. You know, the usual things. We saw how effective that was to derail Evo Morales's victory in Bolivia. But while we must remain vigilant, it does look like Castillo's victory will hold. And it will be fascinating to see how far he was able to go in reforming Peru. Well, Nando, first, uh, I I would regret not mentioning um, how well played your Fujimori apple joke was. (laughs) It was very good. (laughs) I don't know if that that one landed or not. (laughs) (laughs) It landed. I laughed for sure. Um, But, you know, so I had been following the story, but I did not um, read up about what he had said or what his party had said regarding the the central bank allegedly keeping inflation down and all of that. And so it's it's frustrating. um, But I think you bring up a really important point about how difficult it will be to pass reforms legislatively. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I guess my point is, oftentimes, and we do this a lot in American politics as well, especially on the left, like you hear what the candidates are proposing. We want, you know, big reform. We want big change right off the bat. But oftentimes what gets left out of the conversation is the 
process in which you get the reforms, right? And the legislative battles that stand in the way, the systemic, uh, you know, the structure of the government kind of standing in the way of of real reform. We see it in the United States. Um, it's certainly true of this election where uh, Castillo won by such a tiny margin, to be honest, right? So uh, the voters are split. And I'm happy that Fujimori did not uh, win, especially given the fact that she was so brazen about wanting to pardon her father if she gets elected. Um, so, uh, but one other thing I want to bring up is the private media, the corporate media in covering this election was very similar to what we experience here with the corporate media, where they fear mongered about Castillo. There was a lot of nonsense about, oh, he wants to turn Peru into Venezuela. I mean, same conservative talking points that we hear in the United States. And so I think that that did do um, a little bit of damage to his campaign, but he still managed to win. Uh, so that's certainly some good news. Yeah. And, um, you know, we I, I mentioned briefly um, AMLO's, um, AMLO's party's victory in the midterm elections, which was, which was also pretty remarkable. It was one of the largest um, elections held in Mexico ever. They've, they've done a reform to, to, to consolidate as many elections uh, um, as they can. And, um, and, you know, AMLO is kind of a pre- predecessor to this new wave of, of Latin American left resurgence. And one thing that we're seeing with his administration um, is just absolute total opposition from the domestic media and the global media, like to a degree that is remarkable. Um, yep. More than I can remember in any other situation. And, and if you look at like his actual, um, his actual record, I mean, it's, I mean, he's done some some progressive things, um, but it's not like he's, you know, he's he's not like Hugo Chavez or anything like that. He's nowhere near as 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 pugilistic and and and, and even authoritarian in some degrees as as Chavez was. Um, but like, it's just like blanket wall to wall coverage uh, of just this like, you know, painting him as this comically inept um, and and dangerous populist authoritarian. Um, and I think part of it, I mean, outside of the usual kind of thing that any anyone in the global South who is like even a little bit left of center is just completely demonized. Um, but it is this thing that he and Pedro Castillo both have in which they, they do not perform, for lack of a better term, the PMC thing. They don't do that. Mm. They just like... They, they don't care about that. You know, they don't care about the stylistic kind of embrace of cultural um, norms and attitudes um, that, um, that, that, you know, kind of urban educated people have, the people who are in the media. You know, they and, – and I can't help but think that there's a huge kind of class resentment that, that is directed to them um, – by members of the media who who see them as like, you know, basically like hillbillies, you know, like they're from the from mm-hmm. the country, you know what I mean? Um, and uh, so it's it's been interesting to see that these are the type of people who who have won in Latin America. I mean, you know, we we covered the elections in Ecuador, um, which the left lost to a comically like right wing banker guy named Guillermo Lasso, like a rich banker, and mm-hmm. that candidate Andres Arauz was 
kind of a, a PMC, you know, spoke perfect English, um, wore a suit and tie. You know what I mean? Like, um, mm-hmm. even though like his all his poli- like he was, you know, he was good on everything. Um, he just didn't have that kind of common touch that someone like Pedro Castillo or AMLO have. And it's interesting. It's interesting that that's, that's the dynamic at play here, that um, mm-hmm. the, the candidates who do well on the left are rooted in the working class, come from the working class, and, 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 and reflect, and people feel themselves reflected in them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people are going to vote for individuals that they can feel they can relate to. Um, so I think that makes a lot of sense. I wanted to just bring up one other thing that you mentioned, um, you know, in, in regard to Castillo and his more, I guess, conservative leaning views on some social issues like uh, drug legalization and all of that. You know, those issues I, I do find to be important. However, um, I, I do caution against uh, politicians who specifically run on those issues and avoid running on issues pertaining to, you know, the economic anxiety that people are facing. So, um, you know, not to compare the United States to Peru, but just to give a, an example in our own context here in the United States. I mean, you look at the Democratic Party and how Biden, for instance, ran on being this like decent person, this great guy who believes in love and equality and unity for all. And what we're seeing with his Justice Department right now is a full-blown defense of the awful policies that were implemented by the Trump administration, including this whole notion of providing um, cover for private companies or private schools that receive federal funding but still discriminate against the LGBTQ community. If you're receiving federal funding, you are supposed to be bound by federal laws, you know, in regard to discrimination and all of that. Biden's DOJ, under the leadership of Merrick Garland, is essentially saying, no, 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 don't worry, private schools that are receiving federal funding. Uh, we are we believe in religious liberty. We are 100 percent on your side. And so if you choose to be discriminatory in any way toward any group of people, and as long as you cite religious liberty as the reason, we've got your back. And that is it just shows you how hollow, um, you know, especially with the Democratic Party, that campaign strategy really is. It's nothing more than a strategy. When push comes to shove, they don't actually do what they're supposed to do to improve the lives of the very people they claim to care about. Yeah. Know? And the thing with these social issues is, is that they're, they're called social issues for a reason in that like they're issues that the society um, kind of has to decide on their own, like in, it, differently from economic issues, which when in which there are more powerful interests at play, you know, namely capital and multinational corporations and, you know, the, all that stuff, like where the only thing that, you know, you have against them is is sort of people power, you know, what social issues like really have to come from the society themselves. Um, and you know, like I think in the United States, there's there's this feeling that, OK, maybe you can um, unite uh, certain people uh, around, you know, an agenda that might be kind of economically populist, but socially conservative. And maybe uh, I'm not sure that that's the case. But in Peru, it wasn't there wasn't that really that's not really the dynamic that happened. There was this huge divide between mm-hmm. um, the rural areas and. Um, 
and the urban centers, which is the exact opposite of what is happening in the rest of the democracies in which the rural areas are getting more and more reactionary um, and and increasingly voting for uh, right-wing parties, whereas the urban centers are are voting for kind of center-left parties. Here, it was in, in Latin America, and it often happens. It's the complete opposite. So there isn't like this... It's not like they're uniting... He's uniting, um, you know, like fascisty type uh, hyper nationalists with, um, you know, rural workers. He's just he's just like he's really just like right. concentrating on running up the score in these rural areas, which probably do. You know, a lot of these peasant communities, mining uh, communities just have conservative views on social issues. And like, what are you going to do? Like, um, that's why they're social issues. You have to kind of the society has to evolve with them. Like if you just kind of outpace them, you're just going to lose. And, you you know, like there's just no, um, and it's not like in Latin America, there is like this bastion of like, you know, Latin America has, this is, this is not a Peru specific thing. I mean, I think only like 20% of Latin American countries have marriage equality. Um, and you know, abortion is illegal almost everywhere in, in Latin America. So this isn't like a specific thing to Peru. It is a Latin American thing on the whole. I mean, just think about what Obama very transparently said during his interview with Ezra Klein, where he uh, talked about his campaign strategy. And he's like, I just didn't talk about the fact that I'm black. I didn't talk about these social issues. I focused on economic issues. And that's what appealed to voters. Um, He found something that united uh, most voters, which was concerns about the economy. And he focused his campaigning on that. Uh, yeah. Now, obviously, when he was elected into office, his actions were very different from what he campaigned on. But nonetheless, yeah. um, you know, you can you can see, you know, that dynamic at play in various yeah. democracies. And I think you're right. Well, we just saw right. a friend, um, friend of the show, mm-hmm. Paul Prescott of the of the weekday show, chimed in in the comments. Amlo said abortion wasn't going to be a priority. But in office, he's been the most progressive on the issue in Mexico's history. Sometimes strategic decisions need to be made to win power. So yeah, I mean, I yeah. think that I think that a lot of a, a lot of that is is going to happen with Castillo as well. All right. Well, let's uh, move over to the United States uh, and discuss a little bit of domestic policy that unfortunately was blocked in the Senate this week. Uh, barely got much attention, but I think it's an important story. So let's discuss. Workers in the United States were dealt another blow this week as the GOP succeeded in using the Senate filibuster to block the passage of the Paycheck Fairness Act. Now, the legislative filibuster, of course, would require 60 senators to vote in favor of any piece of legislation. Um, and of course, the final vote fell short of that. Senators voted 49 to 50 to try to advance the legislation, falling short of the 60 votes needed to overcome the procedural hurdle. Now, of course, there are 50 Democratic senators in the Senate. So uh, I'm sure some of you might be wondering, why were there only 49 votes? Well, Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand decided not to show up for the vote, which is strange. Strange, considering women's equality tends to be the issue she's tethered herself to in order to campaign. But nonetheless, uh, let's move on to why this is so disastrous. Now, the Paycheck uh, Fairness Act didn't get much attention. This vote didn't get much attention. Um, but 
I suspect the reason why Democrats, uh, the reason why it didn't get so much attention in the lead up to the vote is because of the way Democrats messaged on it. They made it seem as though the Paycheck Fairness Act was just about gender. It was just about ensuring that men and women get paid the same. And to be fair, that was certainly part of it. But this bill really did have a positive universal impact on workers. And I feel like their messaging should have focused on that. And people would understand um, the importance of actually passing this bill. So first, let me just go to a video of Democratic Senator Patty Murray, who explains exactly why it's important to pass a bill like this. Right now, an employer can brush aside reports of pay discrimination by saying things like, quote, well, he was a better negotiator, or they work in different buildings. I mean, what does that have to do with it? Exactly. What does that have to do with it? I mean, oftentimes when we hear about, uh, you know, pay differences and all that, this nonsense about, well, you're probably not a good negotiator. You probably didn't do this. You probably didn't. Just all this nonsense that actually has nothing to do with a worker's qualifications or a worker's skills. And so this bill focused on mitigating uh, that kind of uh, strategy or talking point that you get from employers who uh, engage in unfair pay. So what would the bill do? The bill would limit employers to bona fide factors such as education, training, and experience when justifying pay differentials in wage discrimination claims. That means that negotiating tactics and other nonsense could not justify unequal pay between two employees with similar seniority who work the same job. Also, uh, there was another important part of the bill that didn't really get much attention. Certainly, Democrats didn't message about it much, but it stated that employers would also be prohibited from retaliating against workers who compare salaries and barred from inquiring about prospective employees' salaries' histories during the hiring process. So just think about that for a second. Um, First off, it's already illegal to... uh, retaliate against employees if they uh, disclose what their salaries are, but employers retaliate anyway all the time. I'll get to that in just a minute. But the second part of that is really, really important because oftentimes when you apply for a job, you are asked what your previous salary was. And based on your previous salary, the employer that you're applying to work for decides how much to pay you. Think about the amount of millennials who graduated into the economic disaster of 2008 and how difficult it was for them to find well-paying jobs. Many of them took jobs that honestly underpaid them. And for them to have to deal with that low base pay haunting them for the rest of their careers doesn't make sense. So I love that particular provision of the bill, and it's really a shame that it was blocked in the Senate uh, because of, yes, the Senate filibuster. And also, even if the Senate filibuster didn't exist, Kirsten Gillibrand didn't even show up to vote for it. Now, um, also, openly discussing pay with colleagues, again, helps to determine if you or your colleagues are being underpaid. It's an important thing to discuss Paycheck or pay transparency is an important thing to protect. And this video explains why in a little more detail. Open salary plans can encourage companies to eliminate pay inequities, including gender disparities. And it's been found to build employee trust as well. Research at Tel Aviv University showed that an open salary plan makes workers more satisfied 
and more productive. Employees at companies with open plans also spend less time, if any time, trying to figure out what everyone else is earning. And a well-mapped salary scale provides a blueprint for advancement. So that's uh, in regard to companies that are incredibly transparent about what they pay their employees. They have documents that employees can refer to to see how everyone's paid. And so there are significant upsides to that because that transparency, um, you know, essentially prevents resentment, anger, any type of uh, rift between uh, the employees. And it's just it's the right thing to do. It's 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 it allows the worker to be able to ask legitimate questions about what he or she is being paid. Now, uh, current law does provide some protections for workers in this regard, but there are exceptions and loopholes. So while in most cases, uh, employers are not allowed to retaliate against employees for discussing their pay, uh, loopholes do exist. It is unlawful for private sector employers to prohibit employees from discussing wages and compensation. And it has been since the National Labor Relations Act was passed in 1935. There are exceptions. Uh, and that includes supervisors, agriculture workers, and domestic employees. So even with the current labor laws, employees still punish workers for pay transparency. For instance, um, it, as Angela Cornell from uh, Cornell University told the New York Times, it's been the law of the land for many years that employers can't have policies or practices or discipline employees for discussing wages, but that doesn't mean it hasn't been a common practice. Now, again, it's definitely a disappointment that that bill was blocked in the Senate. But there are certain issues in our current economic system, in the way that employees get paid, that were not addressed in that bill. And I want to take a little bit of time to discuss them and draw attention to them. But more importantly, I hope that by telling you guys about this, it'll empower you to avoid signing into what's referred to as non-compete contracts with your employer. Because chances are the non-compete contract is something that is illegal in your context, or more importantly, you can fight back against and ensure that your colleagues are not you know, bound by these uh, agreements. Now, non-compete agreements, which used to be thought of as contracts between companies and high-paid professionals to essentially protect and guard uh, trade secrets, is now being used for low-income employees. Uh, we're talking about people people who work at fast food restaurants. We're talking about people who have no access to trade secrets, but this is really just a strategy by the employer to uh, keep wages low and to prevent competition from uh, essentially uh, threatening their revenue and their profits. So uh, non-competes stress or suppress the wages of workers by preventing them from leaving their current job for a similar position at another company that actually pays them more. So it stunts any type of upward mobility for workers. A 2019 study from the Economic Policy Institute found that somewhere between 27.8% and 46.5% of private sector workers are subject to non-competes, which means anywhere from 36 million to 60 million American workers have signed a non-compete agreement in their current job. I'm sorry, but there are not... like. 
there aren't 60 million executives in the United States who have access to trade secrets and thus they need to sign these non-competes. That's ridiculous. In fact, recent data from the Treasury Department found that about 30 million people or one in five workers is is currently bound by a non-compete contract. And around 40% of all workers will be bound by a non-compete contract at some point in their career. Um, As Paul Constant writes in the Business Insider, low-wage workers, including fast food servers, baristas, and even janitors around the country are forced to sign non-compete agreements, even though they don't have access to sensitive or secret information. And you need to understand just how devastating this is for workers. In fact, here's an example for you. Ochoa came to the U.S. five years ago and almost immediately went to work at Allure. I learned everything here. But two years ago, she says her husband convinced her to join him at nearby Canterbury Lampshades, which offered her 50 cents more an hour, but also made her sign a non-compete contract. They called me into the office and said, here are the papers you need to sign. And if you don't sign, you don't get the job. She signed, but she says Canterbury failed to give her full-time hours, so she quit and returned to Allure. Canterbury has since sued both Ochoa and Van Wettering for violating the non-compete agreement. This is so unfair. Forcing people to sign these papers, it's like cutting off our hands because we can't work anywhere else. Ochoa offered to resign from Allure. Van Wettering wouldn't hear of it. Instead, he filed a countersuit. For the record, Canterbury declined our interview request. First of all, we hired her originally. We taught her the skills that she has. I can't believe there'd be a judge somewhere in the state of Florida who would agree with my competitor that a person making $9 or less... $9 or less? Yeah. Assembling lampshades is now subject to a non-compete clause. So think about how this system is so clearly rigged against the American worker in order to protect the profits of these companies. Non-compete agreements help artificially stifle competition in the labor market, allowing employers to keep wages low by limiting workers' employment options. That's the whole point of using these non-compete agreements. Now, a recent report from the Economic Policy Institute found that non-competes were one of the major factors that over the past 40 years have shrunken the paychecks of the median American worker by roughly $10 per hour. It locks workers in to these companies that underpay them. They're not able to take a better paying job. And sometimes, by the way, these non-compete agreements last for about two years after the employee quits the company that they signed the non-complete, uh, non-compete agreement with. Now, laws regarding these agreements really do vary state by state. There are some states that have completely outlawed them for uh, workers who are not executives, people who do not have any access to trade secrets. But then you have states like Florida, unfortunately, that are pretty extreme in not just allowing non-compete agreements, but enforcing them. Take a look. In 2012, the Saeed signed a detailed contract with a private company called LifeShare to take David and Cyrus into their home. LifeShare would train and supervise the Saeeds and also give them a portion of what the state paid for the boys' care. The Saeeds agreed to provide a long list of services. 
Robert, sir. This is a babysitting, this is a therapeutic setting. We're constantly taking data, annotating behaviors, looking at trends, graphing that information. We have therapists coming in and out. We have doctor's appointments. This level of foster care can be physically and emotionally challenging. Again, I've gotten pushed in the face. He's gotten bitten. He's got nose broken. You know, we don't take it personal. This is a challenge that they were born with. Mm -hmm. It's our job to help them manage it. But according to the contract, the response to violent outbursts was to dial 911, then a LifeShare hotline and wait for a callback. LifeShare wouldn't comment, but the Saeeds say the company often told them to lock themselves in their bedroom. What happens if he gets into glass or into some of the kitchenware? Or the Saeeds decided to terminate the contract with LifeShare and deal directly with the state, which was urging a more hands-on approach. They say LifeShare immediately invoked the non-compete clause, withholding their monthly stipend and demanding they either give up the boys or pay $20,000 to keep them. So this is in the state of Florida where you have a foster family that's bound by a contract that, you know, essentially forces them to do something that's actually harmful to the foster children they're fostering. They decide they want to leave this company that they're working for, but they have this non-compete. Florida actually decided to enforce that non-compete in this particular context, which gives you a sense of really how broken the system is, how ridiculous it is that these laws vary state by state. But there is a solution to it, which I'll get to in just a second. Before I do that, though, um, even in states where non-compete agreements are outlawed and have absolutely no teeth, just know that companies still try to use them. And you should be aware of that because you might be in one of these states that have outlawed the, the non-compete agreements, but maybe your employer tricked you into signing one that you should not be bound by. Watch. Non-compete contracts are increasingly unenforceable, but employers keep asking workers to sign these contracts. For example, in California, workers sign non-compete contracts at a higher rate than most Americans. And yet, in that state, these contracts carry almost no legal weight. So what then is their purpose? Those agreements are just restricting competition and employee mobility, which means you can pay your folks less money and have a better bottom line at the end of the day. That's what it's about. It's greed. Now, if you think that non-compete agreements are bad, there's actually a type of contract agreement that's even worse, and it's referred to as the no-poach clause in employment contracts. Now, what does no poach mean? How is it exactly different from non-compete? Well, believe it or not, non-competes are just the tip of the iceberg. There are also these uh, no, no poach agreements um, where, you know, basically if you work for a franchise, let's say you work for uh, a McDonald's franchise to give you a specific example, no poach agreements prevent you from being able to work at a different McDonald's franchise that you might want to work at because it's a little closer to home, it leads to a shorter commute, whatever the re reason is. You're not able to go from one McDonald's store to the next as a result of these no poach agreements. In fact, here's Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro explaining what no poach agreements are exactly and what they do to workers. 
We have this setup, this construct in, in, frankly, all across our society today, where the system seems to be rigged against workers, particularly low interest, low income workers. And here's basically how this deal works, right? Steph, you own five McDonald's, Ali, you own five, I own five. And as part of the deal with our workers, as dictated by the McDonald's franchise, it says that a worker who works for me can't go, Steph, and work at your McDonald's where they might be able to earn a better living, mm-hmm. make a few more bucks, be closer to be able to pick up their kids at school because of these so-called no-poach agreements. It holds down the wages of that worker. It holds down the entire economic sector. And it's just, frankly, unfair. It is quite frankly, unfair. Um, And it's unfair and essentially skewed against the worker on purpose. And there are some good people out there who are fighting back against uh, non-competes and no-poach agreements. Now, there's been far more success in regard to no-poach agreements, uh, but it still doesn't go far enough. So I want to turn my attention to, or your attention to, to um, Washington Attorney General Bob Ferguson, who has been fighting on behalf of workers who have been tricked into signing these no-poach agreements. Um, As Business Insider reports, uh, this Attorney General requested franchise agreements from every corporation that had franchises in Washington state and found that nearly 300 companies had some form of a no poach clause. In fact, he says, quote, we sent them a letter saying, basically, you need to eliminate this no poach provision, not just for your Washington franchisees, but nationwide. Otherwise, we're going to file a lawsuit against you. And so eventually, over the course of about a year, all of them eliminated these no poach agreements, not just in Washington, but across the country. Now, again, no poach agreements are different from non-competes, and there still needs to be quite a bit of work done on, on you know, this issue. Um, so thanks to Ferguson's leadership on the issue, though, the Washington state legislature passed a law in 2019 which voids non-competes for employees who earn less than $100,000 annually. Seven other states have similar laws on the books, but Ferguson notes that non-competes are still legal in the vast majority of states, including Florida. Florida. He urges people in those states to talk to your local legislators to take action on behalf of workers. Now, Ferguson's suggestion there is fine, but I would argue that a far better strategy, a a strategy that doesn't necessarily rely on the federal government, which of course uh, has proven itself to be dysfunctional, uh, a strategy that doesn't necessarily even require the attention of an attorney general, would be one that actually strengthens labor power. If you have unions, labor unions, actually representing the workers within these companies, then you actually have someone representing your best interests uh, when it comes to these contract negotiations or any type of agreement that an employee needs to sign. Uh, A union would be able to discover that there's a non-compete clause within the agreement and fight back against it. And more importantly, a labor union would be able to see that the no-poach clause in these agreements or these contracts could easily be... um, 
fought back against because they're illegal in most contexts. So look, when we talk about the importance of labor unions, it's not just about being able to organize general strikes. It's not just about um, ensuring that workers are being paid uh, appropriately uh, for the work that they're doing. It's also about ensuring that workers don't end up signing things that they should not be bound by, that they shouldn't even have to sign to begin with. Um, And it's It's nice to have someone or an organization, a group of people on your side fighting for you within the company. I think part of the problem is we think, you know, calling our state lawmakers is going to make a big difference and it could. But again, if you have a union representing you, I think that that is going to pay better dividends for the workers uh, than anything else. So we need to organize. We need to unionize. I think that's really the best solution in ensuring that workers get the protection and the pay that they deserve. Nando. Wow. Yeah. I mean, shocking that uh, the Democrats would not uh, show up to pass a bill to help uh, to help workers. I mean, it's just, you know, the the initial flurry around the uh, covid uh, like bailout that was passed in in the Biden administration has like given way to just like, you know, total paralysis and uh disappointment and uh you know seeing this like not like how can you how can you not come out and and pass a bill when you're the democrats um eliminating these like non-competes i mean they're just so comically they're just so comically tyrannical and evil and and just like the basic premise that even in in our in our shitty system a worker can't even like leverage his, you know, another offer from another company um, in the same industry to to get higher wages. It's just, it's it's absolutely mind boggling. And that was, I just, I didn't realize, I didn't even realize like that um, these no poach clauses. I've, I mean, I'd heard of non competes. I've signed non competes, you know, in in my career. Um, but these no poach, but we're, uh, yeah, it's just crazy. We're different though, right? I thought I thought that it was just mostly like, like on. Yeah. yeah, on air We're people talent. and We're talent, you know, baby. which, <laughs> yeah, like I just, and even in that context, I think it's stupid, right? Yeah. Just let people be free. I mean, I love that I'm able to do this show and I'm not bound by a non compete agreement at TYT. And they think, you know, it's, it's better to go out there and branch out and, and talk to people and open up yeah. your mind to different ideas. And I love that. And it's, it's made me a better host at TYT. Yeah. But anyway, that's, that's usually in our context, right? You never I, heard about it, really, um, in the context of a worker at Jimmy John's, which, yeah. by the way, when the attorney general in Washington tried to fight back against these um, no poach agreements, Jimmy John's was like, we're going to sue you. No, we're going to we're yeah. going to keep it in place. We're going to fight. Um, luckily, the attorney general won that case. And then J- uh, Jimmy John's had to pay for the legal costs of the uh, attorney general's office, I think to the tune of one hundred twenty five thousand oh, dollars, which is nice. Good. Yeah, I yeah. I remember one of part of my negotiations um, for a network that I was at. Um, it was uh, like I, I, you know, I settled on salary, all that stuff. But they had this non-compete that I was like, OK, I get that if I leave, you know, like if I decide to leave, I could live with a non-compete in this. But they had they were including a non-compete like if they fired me for whatever reason, you know. And I was like, wait, That's if you crazy. fire me, how am I supposed to be bound by a non-compete? You know, like it's not my fault, you know, that 
that you guys decide to to fire me? Like, why would I agree to a non-compete if it's your decision to like, what am I supposed to do? Like, just not work? Like, you know what I mean? Like, um, it, it, it's, it's crazy. Like that, just this idea that, you know, it's just, it, it drives me crazy when I see people kind of buy into the idea of America as like, you know, you know, competition and all that stuff. And like, really what it is, is just, it's just like class war on the way, you know, mm-hmm. in, inverted. And it's just like, um, it's just, just punishing and, and making it harder to, 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 to even eke out a, a living in, in, in the shitty system that we have. It's just, it's crazy. I mean, these major corporations can't even compete against the federal government's unemployment insurance. There's just yeah. like, let that sink in for a second. They're complaining about an extra $300 a week for unemployed workers. And rather than maybe discussing, hey, these starvation wages are not luring in employees, maybe we should change that. They're like, no, we got to rig the system, make people desperate to you know, get paid 15000 Literally, if you're making minimum wage in this country, it's $15,000 a year. That's crazy. That's, that's crazy. absolute insanity. Yeah. And uh, that's the system we live under. And to be quite honest with you, it would be so easy. Like, there's so much public support to change that. Yeah. And the fact that the Democrats won't do it um, tells you everything you need to know about how broken our political system is. Yeah, and they yeah. suck. Definitely. They suck so much. They just suck so much. Anyway, should we bring on our, our, our lovely guest? Yes, yes. Ronan, let's bring Young you on. Young Ronan, uh, the lad. There he is. Ooh, how's it going, baby? <laughs> there he is. Can, we, can you see us? I don't know. Maybe his Wi-Fi is no good. Well, in the meantime, oh, while no. Ronan sorts I can sorts out his technical issues. Oh, there we go. Um, can you see us, Ronan? I can. Okay, there you are. Well, the good news is it looks like Christian Erickson is uh, conscious. It looks like he's awake. Uh, he's in the hospital undergoing some tests, but uh, you know, at least you know he's still alive. Uh, so that's that's great news. Yeah, look, listen, that's uh, one of those things where you're trying to watch, uh, you know, a game of football and you're just reminded of the the fact that the world is going on at the same time and that yeah. much bigger factors and much bigger concerns intervene into your into your life. Um, there's a whole conversation, I think, to be had there about how the media, um, particularly, you know, the broadcasters treated that moment, mm. uh, which was pretty brutal in my view right trying to get images of ericsson when he was out receiving cpr images of his wife and stuff mm. um, and i think probably that feeds into conversations we've had before about the commercialization of football and this kind of mad drive towards profitability in sport i think that was one of the more grotesque uh, examples uh, of it mm. you know where yeah i, I, I have the- i've been doing the show so i haven't seen what what they've been you know what they've been showing but yeah, that sounds pretty, pretty in poor taste for sure. Yeah, yeah, it was, and I think a lot of people who um, uh, who saw that would have kind of uh, yeah, yeah, felt a little uncomfortable with the way the broadcasters handled it. But look, it's a difficult situation for I think a lot of people to be in, and it's going to be it's going to be a challenge now to figure out what to do with the, the rest of the games. Yeah, yeah. 
All right. Well, Ronan, um, you know, we brought you on to talk a little bit about the um, Unite Labor Union and its upcoming uh, election for leadership. And, um, you know, it's a super, it's a fascinating story considering um, the candidates involved. Uh, and everyone, please check out Ronan's piece on this. Ronan Burtonshaw, of course, um, in The Guardian, uh, he writes, if Unite's left can't run a united leadership campaign, it will be harshly judged. Uh, so Ronan, give us the basics um, in yeah. understanding what's at stake here with this election. Look, I mean, this is one of those things where it's worth having a bit of context and kind of political landscape laid out because it's the internal politics of a union in, in Britain. So I'm imagining a lot of your audience will be wondering its relevance. Um, Unite is one of the biggest, uh, if not the biggest trade union uh, in Britain. It's over a million members. Um, it's also the largest that we've considered on the left. And so, uh, you know, like in all countries, you have different kind of political leanings of the of the unions at different levels, industrial militancy between different unions, approaches to the trade union question. Unite would be one of those considered on the left. In the political sphere, that meant it was one of the most important institutions in supporting the Corbyn project um, over the you know, almost five years of his leadership of the Labour Party. But actually, it has a much more fundamental political role than that. Uh, if you trace back the movements against austerity in Britain, which kind of, you know, formed the basis, laid the groundwork for organism to emerge later on. Many of these were funded and supported and given their start through through uh, uh, Unite the Union. Uh, movements like UK Uncut, the People's Assembly Against Austerity. Unite also provides a support for a huge range of the infrastructure that opposed the British left, everything from the anti-war movement and anti-racist movements to Palestine solidarity campaigns for, um, for justice, for, you know, trade units in Colombia and so on, and also funding support. It's one of the biggest uh, funders of the Labour Party, and in particular, it is a funder and a supporter of the Labour left. It has a block vote, the way in which the Labour Party works. It's still a party affiliated with trade unions, and so Unite has a big conference, so it plays this important political role. But it has other, you know, the industrial side of it, I think, is equally as important in this, in this question, in this election, because, you know, Unite has the biggest strike of all of the unions it has a very large general fund and its strike fund is uh, you know by far the most significant of the uh, the unions this allows it to fight and in many cases win very important uh, structurally important uh, industrial disputes so for instance if you take in recent weeks um up in uh, in greater manchester um there's this policy in britain known as fire and higher that is really you know taking off in the wake of the pandemic which is an attempt by employers to just fire their workforce on mass and rehire them on worse conditions and in a number of instances big companies have managed to get away with uh, conducting policies like that unite um through strike action in a, in a, a major uh, corporate transport corporation called go ahead this specific part we call uh, northwest in, in greater manchester um fought and won a very important uh, battle against fire and rehire just in the past few weeks uh, there was also a landmark victory against a conservative run council by by bin workers uh, there was a big battle in british airways against uh, a sacking thousands of workers in a fire and rehire scheme which unite managed to 
leadership event, compulsory redundancies in. There were battles in Marriott hotels where about a 1,500 workers' jobs were, were, were on the line. Unite was also key in pushing the furlough scheme. So it was really the, at the forefront of the trade union efforts to get the furlough scheme, which was, of course, the wage support that most British workers relied on throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, where a huge proportion of, of, of people had their wages subsidized by the state. Um, so, you know, we're talking here about the most important working class institution in Britain. And unfortunately, the, the reality of things uh, is that there are divided camps on the left now. In the last election, there was a narrow victory for its left wing general secretary of about 5,000 votes over a, a what would be considered a hardline right winger in, in trade union and labor movement terms. Uh, and this time we have a three split on the left, which means that this time. Uh, right is, is in a very strong place. And I think, you know, this speaks to very important questions uh, for all of us in the wake of quite similar defeats um, that the left has, has suffered. The Bernie defeat in the States, Corbyn's defeat in Britain, but really right the way across the Western left, this moment that uh, began, I think, in the austerity phase in 2012, 2013, and so on, um, and grew its series of Spain and France and Soumise and Bernie and Corbyn. This moment has come to an end, um, and you can see that it's a kind of secular decline for our uh, socialist and, and anti-establishment left in politics in all these countries. And what's happening at the same time is a process of fragmentation. Um, and this always happens on the way down um, after after movements, um, a kind of um, hey, a, a process uh, of uh, uh, of division uh, between yeah. um, different forces on the left. Partly as people try to. You've been cutting out. Why did I cut uh, out for a second? We then? should, uh, Kale. Yeah. What do we do? You're the producer. Yeah. Take charge, produce, brother. <laughs> Sorry about this, guys. Um, yeah, Ronan, I've I've been able to hear a good chunk of what you've said, but it's been cutting in and out a little bit. Um, so maybe maybe we'll pause the interview for a second um, if you have the opportunity to to play with your Wi-Fi um, and see if maybe there's some way to enhance that. Um, but uh, in the, yeah, in the meantime, um, yeah. While we wait, I do actually have a a topic we can maybe bring up um, sure. about. Uh, yeah, in New York. Um, I've been wanting to talk about this with you guys, and I think now is a perfect opportunity while Ronan gets his internet connection figured out. But, you know, oftentimes when we talk about um, the importance of unions, uh, sometimes what gets left out of the conversations is situations in which unions might actually be a little counterproductive. And I think we're seeing that in the state of New York and its efforts to pass a single-payer healthcare system within the state. Um, so the usual players are um, preventing even a vote on that legislation, which would pass since the majority of um, lawmakers in New York will vote in favor of it. But Democratic leadership in the state of New York has decided to um, avoid allowing for a vote on that bill for a single payer health care system in New York because, yes, private health care uh, private health care companies are fighting it. But so are some unions in the state. Uh, that are upset that it would do away with the progress they made in negotiating um, the healthcare benefits of some of their workers, right? So I wanted to bring that up real quick and just kind of discuss it with you guys. I, you know, I want to know what you guys think about it and, um, you know, what can be done to kind of like mitigate that in the future because 
Clearly, a single-payer healthcare system is far better than relying on a private insurer, which would require co-pays, deductibles, premiums. Um, in the case of a single-payer healthcare system, you are provided free healthcare at the point of service. You don't have to deal with those co-pays or those premiums or those deductibles. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Well, so if I could just jump in, I mean, because I jump in, I think because the way you the way you framed it, I mean, I agree with everything you've just said. Um, but the the fact that you said clearly the single payer system is better, I, I think part of the problem is that that isn't clear to, to everyone right now. And that mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people that um, so, for instance, like what you're saying, some of the public sector uh, unions have uh, not been. So it's, it's a little bit different depending on the unions, because some of them have said that they've been in favor of single payer in the past. Um, but it seems that right now, a lot of uh, public sector unions at the moment um, are either uh, remaining agnostic or are opposed or they're encouraging opposition. Um, and again, I think, you know, it's understandable just rationally, because like you said, I mean, these unions have only recently in the last few decades uh successfully gotten their healthcare contracts with, uh, and, and so that doesn't mean that single payer isn't better. It just means that I think there's still a lot, you know, it's a long road ahead of, of still trying to make the case, um, that single payer is in fact better. And that despite the fact that, you know, this is, this is some political, um, this is some better political future that we're proposing, uh, you know, people, can't see what it's going to look like on the other end. They can't, uh, they can't test drive single payer for a month and see, Oh, actually, wow, this is actually way better than what I have. Um, and Mm -hmm. so, uh, it's, uh, it's just, it's a political fight. I think, um, that people are acting rationally in their interests. Uh, but it's not that they're, you know, it's not that the unions are defending the health insurance companies. Well, it's it. It also just reminds me a little bit. Do you remember like when um, the culinary unions in Nevada um, attacked Bernie and saying that the, you know his yep. his Medicare for all uh, plan would like hurt their you know hard won uh, you know benefit packages and things like that? And it was the it was very clearly like the the union leadership who was behind that. Um, but then the rank and file basically revolted and 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 voted for. Bernie and mass and, and single payer was obviously like a huge, a huge reason for it. So, I mean, often it's just, often it really is like just the divide between, between the leadership of, of an organization and, and it's rank and file. Yeah. And, yeah. and when it's, when it comes down to, you know, leadership that has successfully won something for its members and then telling the members actually, no, despite what the leadership says, you should go with us and you should fight for this, this, what we think is a better system. Um, I mean, it's, it's, we always have to keep in mind on the left when we're proposing what we're proposing that we're going up against the most powerful uh, groups of people in the world, essentially in, in the U S like in, even in New York, even in New York state or in California, where there are these efforts to get state level single payer bills um, because it's not, mm-hmm. you know, in, in New York, the Democrats have super majorities in both chambers at the state level, uh, but the leadership won't put it up to a vote. It's not, um, you know, Andrea Stewart Cousins. That's the one that's standing in the way. She ends up becoming the face and kind of the representative for the interests of capital across New York state, which again are some of the most important capitalists in the country and therefore the world, you know, it's, it's not that, uh, you know, 
it's just one or two people that are that are screwing us over. Like we are faced with uh, a system that is uh, geared towards profit, and politicians that are there to carry out, you know, their you know their ability, what they can do to help corporations make those profits. And so, um, you know, I want to salute Jabari Brisbane in particular, and, and the efforts of, of many of like the socialists in office have been pushing, and, and many of the people behind the scenes, a lot of the socialists, DSA members, and others. Um, behind the scenes that have been uh, up until like 4 a.m. trying to figure out what to do. And this last week when we were trying to push forward the, the New York Health Act, um, it's it, we're just we're up against an enemy that's so large and yet is like we can't even fully see that like it's not mm-hmm. we're not, it's not the politician that is in the way. It's everything standing behind them that uh, and it's it's, you know, relations, it's capital, it's corporations. So. Um, you know, I, I think that we've certainly made progress, but, uh, this is going to be the, you know, the fight to, you know, how do you get labor on board with like, basically like a minimal social democratic program in an era where they've seen defeat after defeat for decades. And I think rationally, unfortunately, but rationally expect that the future is not going to be better and that they should cling on to the limit limited uh, uh, gains that they have made. Um, so it's, there's no silver bullet. There's no, I think it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's hard organizing. It's, it's having conversations with people mm-hmm. and, and trying to, you know, build that kind of solidarity and trust where people say, yeah, actually, you know what? I, I am willing to take that risk with you and fight for something greater. Yeah. The other, the, 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 the deal that um, Alex press was discussing, um, of a lot of the New York labor unions uh, around gig workers, you know, also, you, you know, it has a kind of, it has a kind of rationality toward it, to it, you know, even though it seems like it'd be awful and would enshrine this kind of permanent new class of worker forever. Um, it would give them more members, you know what I mean? Um, even though like it would, it, they, they're negotiating away a lot of their actual leverage and power. Um, you know, often, you know, it's, it's, I mean, this, this, this problem has been, you know, identified since the beginning of the trade union movement and that, you know, that there's, that's like always been the, 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 the goal to like organize all of everyone into one single union because, because of the, of the, of the inherent problems that comes with, uh, you know, the like individual unions, like looking out for their own interests and whatever. Um, uh, this has been an age old problem. Ronan, is Ronan back or is what's, what's going on? Ronan, are you baby? Are you there? Are you back? Talk to me. Talk to me, Goose. I can see. Okay. <laughs> Poor Ronan, man. What, they can don't have Wi-Fi now, in the UK. What's going on? It's it's not it's not great. Um, I don't know. If you I can blame Keir Starmer. I, play, I blame Keir Starmer. Has been sabotaging the stream. Um, he's been shadow banning uh, Ronan from from the Jacobin stream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Yes, but like just now, only that one bit. <laughs> um, okay. Ronan, Ronan, you could just call Kale, and then Kale can hold his phone up to his microphone and and do the interview that way. Here, uh, Ronan, how about here you? You yeah, just just give us audio and I will pantomime what you're saying. I... <laughs> <laughs> you please do that, please. I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> now he's muted. 
Oh, yeah, I can do audio. Um, okay. Yeah. I don't know if it help you guys. This kind of works. We can. We should give you a little photo. How do we? I'll work on the photo. You, you guys. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, maybe Ronan, just to 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 kick it back uh, again. Hello. Can you hear me? I don't know if I can. I don't know. Yeah, I'm still. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, maybe to to if we try it back to kick it to get it started again. Um, you know the this this unite um uh, leadership fight contest. Um, you know you mentioned how important uh unite was to the rise of Jeremy Corbyn within the labor left and how how important it, uh, a voting block it is within the labor party. Obviously, Corbyn lost, and he's been replaced by a guy named Keir Starmer. Um, is there is there a relationship between uh, Keir Starmer and uh, the the right wing of Unite, or 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 not? I, I have genuinely have no idea. And and how is Keir, how is your friend uh, Keir Starmer doing? Yeah, there is um, not only between right of Unite, um, but the right wing, of the Labour in general in the, in the United States insofar as more right-wing trade union leaderships tend to lean towards more right-wing Labour Party politicians um, and they they have a kind of common interest in uh, in trying to um, have a conciliatory approach to the economy to industrial struggles um, kind of you know avoiding class conflict where possible and so you can see where you know there's there's a uh, um, common ground shall we say between the likes of Akir Starmer and right-wing figures in the labor movement but obviously more generally um, it's been a bad few months for Keir Starmer. Uh, his poll numbers have been really, for his project, quite catastrophic. Um, so the Labour Party has fallen in some national polls down almost 20 points behind the Tories. I think their average is more like seven or eight points behind, but it's a very, very significant fall off. Um, and what we're seeing on the one hand is the impact of a prolonged campaign against the left where left-wing voters, particularly the social constituencies that we represent, um, so, you know, younger people who are screwed by the economy, low wages and high rents, um, disillusioned people in working-class communities, people who felt the impacts of years of, of cuts, these are drifting away from the Labour Party, either to other parties like the Green Party or to non-voting, uh, which is uh, the bigger block. Um, and he's also losing voters, uh, more like socially conservative voters who you know, voted for Brexit and maybe um, uh, have gone to the Tories in post-industrial communities as well. Um, so the party's, the party's approach of going to war on the left and trying to be a kind of a hero Onoda um, of Blairism, where they're fighting the wars of the 1990s all over again, uh, has not worked um, because it turns out that politics fundamentally changed post 2008, uh, and there isn't an easy middle ground, an easy kind of um, centrist policy platform uh, to, to hold on to. You know, since we're on the topic of the Labour Party and, and how it's losing support uh, pretty rapidly. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the uh, Labour Party MP who was asked about what the Labour Party's 
whole mission or messages. And uh, he claimed that it was confidential. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was a strange answer. Yes. Well, this is part of the, the strategy of Keir Starmer. So when when uh, Starmer got in first, or when during that campaign for the Labour leadership, um, we wrote a very critical piece uh, in Tribune and got, you know, hammered for it in the, uh, in the rest of the British press. And our argument really was, that he was going to return to a kind of focus group politics, uh, uh, a politics that instead of trying to shape the political landscape, instead tried to interpret where this mythical middle ground was and follow it. And of course, that's a recipe for a particular kind of small C conservatism, um, where what you're doing is instead of outlining a progressive policy platform, instead of making clear what your vision for the country is, you're constantly trying to figure out what the lowest common denominator is and how you know, to piss the fewest number of people off, to be frank, which is what the approach that has characterized the Starmer leadership for the past year has been. And that was one that was Jonathan Ashworth was his name, who, who's the health spokesperson for the Labour Party from bench. That's, the, you know, a, a perfect example of where it leads is that you're so afraid of your own shadow to ever say anything that hasn't been tested through these focus groups, um, uh, you know, five or five or six times. Uh, um, that you end up saying that yeah we have a we have a vision for the party but you know we we can't uh, we can't uh, um, tell you what it is <laughs> um, uh, you know we have a secret plan to win the next election but you yeah. know uh, we can't reveal it to the voters uh, which is which is where the the party the party is but I think um, you know one thing that's really uh, important in these circumstances to get to get our heads around. Those of us on the left who are dealing with the different uh, approaches of the centre-left, the moderate figures, um, to this new environment. Looking at the United States from Britain, um, you, I would say that Joe Biden, although he is, of course, a lot of this, I suppose, is tokenism insofar as Biden claims to support things like the $15 minimum wage and then doesn't fight for them. But at the very least, mm -hmm. he has tried to uh, adjust the rhetoric of his presidency quite significantly from Obama. Um, you know, it's a different, the, 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 their kind of way of approaching politics um, is trying to learn from that populist moment that we've just had um, and to appeal to people who understand that the economy is fundamentally broken. Whether it introduces any of the policy on a fundamental level, I think is another question. But um, one of the big challenges now, or one of the big questions really for the centre-left is do you have um, centre-left politicians who just think this is the 1990s again and are trying to engage in battles of decades ago, chasing a mythical middle ground of people who are in an economy where people were quite happy with how things are going? Or are you going to have these centre-left politicians who try to build you know, broader coalitions that bring in some of our people? And both of those options present real trouble for the left and difficulties for us. Because on the one hand, where you are in the States, you can see the difficulty with like outlining a clear left-wing message. And I see this in the, how the squad is approaching Joe Biden, when obviously he is trying to at least speak to some of our issues. Um, and people have this huge threat of the Republican Party on the other side. And all of a sudden, they start to soften a bit on the corporate Democrat kind of machine. Um, and it might mm -hmm. be harder to hold our coalitions together on the left in the, in the medium and long term, which I think is a, is a real challenge for us. Whereas in, in Britain, we have a different question where 
Keir Starmer and his lot have gone to war publicly with the left. And their view is this very dated idea, which is what that the left is a kind of an anomaly. It represents these like strange people with radical ideas uh, who have no place in, 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 you know, in modern politics. They're not a legitimate player in the political system. And the only thing that the left does is it drags left vote down. Actually, they're fundamentally wrong. And what we're seeing in the polls now is that that is, that is incorrect. The left represents a real social constituency of people who are pissed off at the way the economy has been going for many years, decades, in fact, but particularly since the crash. And if you go to war with the politicians seen to represent those, so for Jeremy Corbyn, for instance, suspended from the party, and Rebecca Long-Bailey sacked from the front bench and so on, if you go to war with all of these politicians, well, then those social constituencies get alienated from, from, your, from your project. And instead of the left being, you know, 100 people with quirky radical views, you find out that it's millions of people. Uh, who want a, a different kind of economy and have been, you know, uh, attracted to socialist ideas over the past uh, number of years. Um, so I think that that's the debate and discussion we need to have. Uh, how do you approach these two different models? The Biden, the Biden model um, of, you know, uh, appealing to us without actually introducing our policies and the Starmer model of, you know, trying to purge us from the public sphere altogether. The what was the thing that Starmer said after after they lost that big election? He was like, "Well, we're going to change the things that need to be changed, and that's what we're going to do. We're just going to do the thing that needs to be that that's the thing that needs to be done. That's what we're going to do." Um, I want to bring it back to the Unite uh, leadership uh, contest. Can you explain um, why you why you're worried? I guess I mean, you, there's you said there's there's in your piece you wrote about there's four candidates three of whom are on the left and one of them is on the right. And you're like, okay, that's, that's, that's good. Right. But it seems like maybe the left, the left vote will get split and, um, and the right wing guy will get a, uh, will eke out, uh, a, a, the election with a minority or a plurality of the votes. Um, can you explain what's going on and what, what you think should happen? Yes. So my piece today was an argument in favor of a unity candidate. Um, I think if I was if I was in the United States, I would call that article a hail mary pass, <laughs> um, which mm. is uh, which is it's what so, it was. You're not, you're not too optimistic. <laughs> no, uh, I'm not. I'm not because what I was trying to discuss before I um I had uh, you know my my dipping in and out of our in our last uh, segment there was that this is a product of bigger social forces that in decline the left has a tendency and you go back anyone who reads socialist history sees this over repeating cycle after cycle after cycle. When we get defeated, there's a tendency towards fragmentation. Um, and the only thing that can prevent that fragmentation, uh, or at least kind of minimize its impact, are strong institutional kind of bases that hold people to a degree of collective discipline and a, a sense of ideological clarity about you know why we were defeated in the last moment and where we build from, from there. And neither of those two conditions are in place. Uh, and I think, you know, actually, when I look at the United States and I see what's happening with you guys, and there's also these wars in, in the American left, some of which look quite similar to ours, right, between, uh, over the, the squad and whether or not they're uh, now have they sold out to the Democrats or are they outlining a good left wing position and whatever. Once again, you know, this is you guys are in a, a similar condition there where you don't have institutions like big political parties of the left which are capable of bringing everyone or bringing people together into um, some degree of, 
of collective discipline, or at least into a structure where people can resolve these issues. And nor do you have, I don't think, an agreement or a common assessment of why, say, Bernie lost. Um, people have wildly different views within the American left about the reason for Bernie's defeat, which actually um, underpin an awful lot of your disagreements uh, that follow about the squad and, and so on. Um, whether, mm-hmm. you, whether you think that the problem with, with Bernie was running in the Democratic Party, for instance, is, uh, you know, which a lot of people now seem to, to, to argue, whether you think the problem that Bernie was not building enough of a social constituency outside of the electoral politics and you know, having enough campaigns that build working class politics that can then you know, be introduced into a presidential election. Whether, you know, some some people uh, argue that, you know, the problem of Bernie was actually the problem with the broader left, that the that the U.S. left had become very, way more interested in cultural questions and kind of very divorced from working class communities by the time 2020 rolled around compared to 2016. These are all the same debates we're having in Britain to varying degrees. Um, and the, the problem is that without a hegemonic kind of ideological position over why the defeat occurred, it's very, very difficult to move on in a collective fashion. Uh, and so what you're seeing inside Unite at the moment, in my view, um, are, are three different camps with three different approaches to the crisis facing uh, trade unionism. So, you know, trade unionism in, in Britain, we have to to accept the reality of this is in a state of massive decline down to, you know, about a quarter of workers covered by collective agreements today. The union density between the 70s and today has has effectively halved. Uh, And at the same time, um, you have a a condition where particularly growth sectors of the economy uh, have very few organized and unionized workers. Um, and uh, you also have young workers being extremely low in their level of of, uh, of union density. So under 30, you're looking at 5% or so on. So there are these big problems in trade unionism. Also, you know, they're, they're impacted by lots of things. Globalization and deindustrialization were big. Anti-union laws introduced by Thatcher. Um, the, the kind of... Uh, changing nature of the um, the economy that we live in and the growth of these multinational corporations, which are much harder to challenge in, in workplace by workplace, um, all sorts of structural factors. And each of the candidates in Unite has a different kind of perspective on how to deal with it. Like for instance, Sharon Graham, one of them uh, mentioned in the piece, who came second in the nominations, you know, she um, argues for a particular kind of organizing uh, model, which would tilt the trade union towards maybe some new sectors and precarious work um, you'd see a lot more of like attempts to organize uh, maybe cleaners um, uh, in, in, in the hospitals and so on people who are in uh, zero uh, contracts or migrant workers and these kind of sectors um, and she has a kind of young enthusiastic team doing that Howard Beckett, um, who is, uh, you know, has has a, a campaign which is really very politically focused, and his argument is the only way really to revive the trade union movement is to revive socialist politics more more generally, uh, and that's his camp's analysis of things. And Steve Turner um, is the the guy who has the nominations lead, and he is the you know he won he's the successor effectively of the of the current United General Secretary, um, and he won the internal left caucus's uh, election. Um, and his argument is that you know that Unite is one of the few that is trying to be on the right path on this by combining a politically combative approach 
with a kind of strong industry but he would have different focuses in the industrial terms to Sharon as well so like his focus would be you organize in the places in the economy where workers have the greatest ability to exert power quite quickly you know in places like say for instance in industry and so on which are or which are uh, create conditions that allow for organization and high density of unionization and therefore allow you to have very impactful strike action and so forth this is these are different philosophies um and you know the the, the difficulty and i'm trying to get across to all three of them in my piece is I understand that you have different approaches, but the, the reality is handing over a union of a million members to somebody who doesn't want to be left in politics or left in industry, doesn't want to have class you know, conflict as an approach in politics or in the, in, in the workplace um, would be a disaster because you know, the, the lesson um, of, and it's, it's kind of, yeah, I, I really think of it as a moment that's going to be quite like your old CIO moment and things like this where, like if the, the these kind of hardline right wing elements in the labor movement, trade union movement in Britain, if they win out here, you're going to see things like what their predecessors did in the old TNG and unite under under Deacon, um, the last really right wing general secretary, which was they will simply ban radicals from holding official positions. There there would be a get the reds out of the union approach, um, and you know I, I anticipate it being that bad, uh, and so trying to keep, you know trying to make the case to people that a you can have real differences on strategy and tactics, but in the end, resolving these amongst the left is preferable than the left eating itself and it being resolved for us by a right-wing solution. Can you talk a little bit about the outgoing general secretary's uh, legacy, um, Len McCluskey? Yeah. So, um, I mean, Len McCluskey, uh, as, I, as I said, if you were to just look at the newspapers... You would think Len McCluskey was like just a figure in the Labour Party and little more because that's what the, the media is obsessed with with covering when it comes to Unite is its role in, in Labour. And Len McCluskey uh, and his uh, his um, union have been the biggest and most important backer of Labour left for many years now. Uh, so this would be a real coup politically um, in, for, for Starmer and, and to them uh, if he was, if he was um, you know, to be replaced by a right winger. Uh, I think you know there are there are a number of important um, uh, things to about uh, unite under under Len McCluskey. Um, there have been some like very important key strategic battles that the that the union uh, has waged. Obviously, at the moment, this doing a national campaign against fire and rehire, which I discussed, um, which is a, a key strategic um, uh, battle. The only reason why it can do that is that a key element of McCluskey's philosophy for developing the union has been to build as big a strike fund as is conceivable. So say, for instance, in both of the last disputes that I talked about earlier on, in Go Northwest Buses, where they took on fire and rehire and won, and in Thurrock Council, where the bin workers beat a Tory council, in both of those cases, those workers had double strike pay, uh, which is to say that they were able to go out on prolonged industrial action um, while being able to maintain themselves over like in, in one of those cases, you know, 80 days, another of those cases, six weeks of strike action without it kind of destroying their livelihoods and getting them into huge amounts of debt or getting them booted from their, from their houses. These are the fact, these are some of the more important factors and people underestimate them sometimes in winning industrial action. You can have the most militant and determined workers that you want, but if your union can't provide them with any kind of 
a basis to sustain themselves over a long period of strike action, well, then it's not going to, you know, they're not going to be able to win. Um, and we learned this, you know, in the hard way uh, with the miners' strike in Britain, um, where the in the 1980s, where there was this big campaign over many months with this, uh, really a titanic struggle um, of the striking miners. Um, and the NUM, you know, did its best to support them, but very quickly ran out of money. It wasn't a big enough union to take on the organized power of the British state over many, many months um, in, a, in, a, in a campaign. And, you know, you ended up with real poverty in mining communities where, where workers were, were, you know, there was this, these attempts to, to kind of go around at left wing events for, for most of that year with tin cans to, to, to put money in so that workers' kids could have food on the table and, you know, could have a, could have a warm coat in the winter and stuff. Um, that's what you're talking about in prolonged strike action if you don't have a big strike fund. And I think that's McCluskey's biggest legacy is that he leaves behind him a very significant strike fund. Um, and you know that that would fall into the hands of uh, of the right wing of the of the movement if uh, if a collective candidate is not. Yeah, um, Ronan, I want to ask about the culture war. One of my favorite topics because you know you and I have discussed how the mm-hmm. culture war has taken over, for example, Spanish politics and how that was just poisonous for the left around the issue of Catalonia. Um, you know, in, in the UK, it's very neatly uh, centered around the question of Brexit. Um, in the US, it takes many different forms. There's not like a single issue, but it takes many different forms all the time. And the latest thing being like critical race theory or whatever. Um, and just in every single case, it's just absolute poison for for any kind of left-wing politics. What's the, how, do we, how do we make it stop? I think it's really interesting, actually. I was going to say earlier, you know, when, when we talked about the difficulties for Starmer in the recent local elections, um, you talked about the by-election where Labour got this incredible hammering in a place that it held since, like, you know, um, the Neolithic period. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it was a really phenomenal um, defeat. Uh, but it, there was also these local elections the same day where Labour, as, a, as an opposition party, did like you know what opposition parties are not supposed to do with kind of 10 year long incumbent governments which is they got smashed but there were examples of places where this didn't happen uh, and those examples places like Salford and Preston which are good examples and we you know we've written about them in Tribune if people want to go and look at the the, the coverage of those of those cases was where we had socialist policies in local government and I think what it showed is actually because both of those are are, are uh, post-industrial, um, both of them are areas that voted for Brexit. Uh, they are in the north, um, and yet they had uh, an ability in the midst of a Labour kind of disaster uh, to return strong results for socialist uh, um, mayors. And why was that the case? Um, in my view, it's because they they figured out, you know, with, with the right, when we talk about its culture war, in, in Britain, we're talking really about its ability to do two things. One, to leverage the national question, like nationalism and reactionary kind of populist nationalism, which it has done extremely well. Um, so, you know, when we talk about um, the campaigns that it runs now against the left, it, it has created this caricature of the left, this censorious student-based left that just wants to deny everyone free speech and, you know, uh, is, is part of this cultural elite. They, they have created, and um, it's important to understand where, what they're doing, because the right is no longer able to defend the economic model that it created, not us, 
it created in the decades after the 80s, which is now collapsing around us, because capitalism is no longer associated with freedom and dynamism and innovation, but is associated with greed and inequality and austerity and all of these things, they have had to pivot. They've had to pivot from their historic strong point of arguing on the economy to arguing on the cultural questions. And we have allowed them to do it because we follow them into the trap every bloody time. Right. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, and this is, this is a, this is a big, big totally. yeah. And this is a big, big part of, of that uh, problem. But in Britain, it's been the nationalism aspect, which is, which is one key part of it. And they also, in a way that Trump didn't, and this is another distinction between us and you guys, they've also pivoted a bit more on the economy. And so, you know, there's been a very, the, the furlough scheme is introduced under a Tory government, like quite significant mm. infrastructure commitments are introduced under a Tory government. They now mm. are beginning to break from the traditional, you know, right-wing idea about the way in which the economy should be structured to a more interventionist uh, approach. And that's, just, that's really put a pincer movement on us. And, and so, but I think in precedent suffered, what we've seen is our way out. And our way out is that when pivot to national, which is really about giving people a sense of, you know, place in this global economy where people feel totally atomized and lost uh, in a world dominated by big corporations. They're using nationalism as a kind of, as a tool to give people something to cling on to. But of course, it doesn't really, because the vast majority of working class people in this country benefit not at all from a nationalist right wing government. Uh, doesn't doesn't do them uh, any great uh, benefit, partly because the Tories are not going to stand up to the big corporations and challenge the rich and so on. There's another way of doing this, giving people a sense of place and community through what they've done in socialist local government. So uh, grounding people in their ability to control the processes of politics where they live. Uh, and so in Preston, you've got the Preston model, which puts a big emphasis on trying to retain as much of the money spent in Preston in the local economy as possible, but in, in really progressive ways. So through supporting cooperative taxi companies, through supporting uh, cooperative cultural centers, through giving um, uh, council buildings over to, to local arts uh, collectives, through having a council-run cinema, uh, so they're trying um, to democratize the local economy and they play upon, you know, the importance of the history of Preston. And this is something we have to get our heads around. The radical local history that talks to people and gives them a sense you can be proud of where you're from. You don't have to. This this thing that the left is very concerned about giving people pride of place is wrong. Actually, people should have pride in the communities they come from. But it shouldn't be a pride that says, well, this is my country and it's not your country. It's uh, This is my country and, you know, uh, I, I endorse every aspect of its foreign policy or whatever else. It should be, this is my community. I have a real say over how it, how it is built and how it is developed. I have a pride in its history. And in, in Preston, they do that. But they also then project and say, this was a great home of the workers' movement. And it can be home to great things again. We can have a strong democratic uh, politics that, you know, uh, works for your community again by giving you these things. In Salford, you have a very similar message. In Salford, it's about you know they've they built the first council housing there in decades, um, and they have they what what the council is doing is uh, is using that and acting at socially useful pro uh, projects. So to making sure that there's insourcing of services, to making sure that 
you know, council housing constructed to making sure and they're going to, to war now, having a big battle over having a living wage for all of the care sector workers who are, uh, who are um, under the you know, authority of the, of the council. These are the, the, the battles. Uh, and this is about giving people a sense of pride of place. And the other thing I think is, is very important in this challenging of the rights, new culture war um, approach, which is so effective for them, is that we have to get better at clarifying, you know, that the Tories might build you a road to uh, to a free port, for instance, because they are doing some infrastructure projects. But in that town, you know, that they built the road to, your job is still going to be low paid. It's still going to be insecure. Your services are still going to be cut. And they're never going to tackle the right will never, ever, ever, no matter how much they talk populist, they will never tackle the growing inequality mm-hmm. that comes from structural balance of in our economy, where corporations and yeah. the rich own everything and the rest of us have to rent ourselves to them in order to live. They will never challenge the power imbalance that comes from that fundamental question. And we have to say, we'll offer you the real thing. They're offering you token measures. We'll offer you the real thing. And what does that mean? So instead of it just being a you know a piece of infrastructure here or you know some a commitment uh, to some industrial policy there, for instance, we have to be clear and committed. You know, we're going to offer you power at work. We're going to offer you every single person in this country a living wage enough to 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 live on. Um, we're going to to offer you uh, a local government that is genuinely run not only in your interests but in a way that's accountable to you. In a way that actually, you know, is is democratically uh, created by um, by the communities it's it's meant to serve. And if we can come up with those messages, I think we can beat the, the culture war, uh, um, you know, kind of game that we're in. I think we can. I think we can win. But it does require learning from the past few years, and that's proving tricky for the left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alrighty. All well, right. Ronan, uh, thanks Ronan. so much, man. No problem, and sorry for my uh, my internet being in and out. When we have uh, when we've won the uh, battle against the culture wars, we'll also have uh, broad broadband communism, and you know, pub- publicly owned oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> fast fast broadband, and my, I'll be bailed out of these problems. <laughs> Love it. Thank you again, Ronan. Um, and we look forward to having you on again. All right. All right. <laughs> love love hearing Ronan talk. It's like uh, it's like ASMR. Yeah. You know, a lot of wisdom in that young lad. I'm sure he's younger than me. You know, <laughs> he's so which smart. Is depressing. Yeah. Uh, uh, the best sounding guy on the left. He's just that's yeah, the guy I mean, you want to listen to. Something about the Irish accent. I love the Irish accent generally. Like it's just soothing to me. Like it mm-hmm. it rolls nicely in my ear. I I can just like close my eyes and and meditate to Ronan talking about like you know. Uh, the CIO purging communists from its leadership or whatever. Um, you know. And if you if you listen to him enough, you can actually hear his voice in your head while you're reading his new article that you should right, all yeah, check yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Totally. So <laughs> totally. One last little totally. plug. You should Ronan's great. Also, you should um here's here's a free plug for Verso that um if you want to know more about uh, Len McCluskey, the outgoing uh, general secretary of uh, Unite, you should there's a book that he put out through Verso called Why You Should Be a Trade Unionist. Um, and it's it's worth reading, I think, uh, even if you're not in the UK. But um, anyways, 
Uh, I'm here because the last little chunk of the show, of course, we do super chats, so uh, which is questions that you submit to us through the live chat, and I will read them out, and we will try to do our best to answer them. Um, before I do that, there is there's one that came in earlier from AW that says, um, uh, this is how they get us with net neutrality. Then again, Rodin's resolution has never or has needed work for some time coming from a place I love you guys. Um, yeah, Ronan, we got to get you better Wi-Fi. Uh, get Bosker, you know. I know. Bosker should be paying for it. Yeah. <laughs> Socialism is when Bosker Sankara pays for yes, your services. That's, that's my kind of, he's the primordial debt holder um, here, and he should just pay for everything. Yeah. Um, okay, let me, this is a super chat we got a moment ago that says, in the long term, we need unions. Um, short term, are they doing labor? Are we are we doing labor more harm than good in the U.S. Um, on Medicare for all and other issues? Do we try to push unions left from the inside, uh, support or start smaller progressive socialist unions, etc.? Um, the short answer is no. They're not doing more harm than good. Um, they they could obviously do better, um, but they are still a force for good in 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 the society like a net positive like no question like no debate on that for me like i, I don't know like i, I think that the, the world in which we just like eliminate them is a worse world you know than 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 the status quo um you know they 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 do need to be you know there there does need to be a, a new tactics strategies new uh, <laughs> um you know all, all all of that good stuff and they can definitely be improved and they're definitely way more right wing than they should be and uh all all of that is true but they are still unquestionably uh, uh a net positive yeah i co-sign on uh, to that and you know me bringing up that topic was just to kind of like talk it through with you mm-hmm. guys and see what you guys think um you know what's happening in new york because you know, it's worth addressing and also yeah. thinking strategically about what to do to mitigate it moving forward, you know? Right. I mean, yeah, they all endorsed Hillary over Bernie, you know, like that's not good. That's bad. That's very bad. But yeah. again, the, the, um, the, they're for, they're still, you know, again, you, you know, the, 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 if the choice is like eliminating them or, or, or keeping them, they, they are still very much a, a force for a positive change. Well, and, and we say that because our goals, our aspirations in life is a world where uh, there's far greater democracy, where people have far greater control over their lives, uh, where people actually have the means and the time um, and the freedom to actualize their potential, to, to you know be creative, to make what they want to make, to work on what they want to work, to have relationships with the kinds of people they want to have relationships with. Um, and we live in a world where because of the actual structure of who owns what, because some people own almost all of the most important productive and wealth ge- generating assets and the essential assets, the, the means of sustenance, the things that we need to live, the food that we, we need to eat, the clothes that we need to wear, uh, because all of that is privately controlled. Uh, we are forced into situations where we have to spend most of our lives working. And so you know, we, the, you know, on the left socialists, we come to the labor movement as the means of effectuating our positive progressive change in the world where we, where we try to get to that future because uh, we've learned 
from history, from you know a lot of trial and error, that uh, the union is the democratic means by which working people can come together and organize for their interests uh, against uh, the interests of their boss and every boss. Uh, that you know the worker uh, has freedom over themselves, but they're a slave to the entire capitalist class. They have to work for one of them, and so even if you you know don't have the worst boss ever. You know, having unions there means that, you know, regardless of what your boss's feelings are in any one thing, you have democratic representation and means of advancing your interests as as a working class person. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's when we then say, OK, well, the unions today are not what we want them to be. Well, we have to find some means of dealing with that fact of. Uh, and so maybe it means doing something other than the union movement. Uh, but so far, the scorecard basically says that when we have seen working class people get anything, whether it's the you know increase in democracy, whether it's you know the um, expansion of the franchise, whether it's uh, just basic public rights, whether it's um, in other countries it was healthcare in this country not really, but Medicaid, Social Security, all these things came through organized working people. Uh, militantly fighting for their interests through unions and and pushing into politics through those means. And so that's where we keep coming back to this. And so, right, as the as the Super Chat said, that's kind of why we keep it in the long term. And then in the short term, you know, then we get creative about how do we deal with um, the more immediate problems uh, of, for instance, public sector unions not supporting single payer. Um, and that's where politics becomes more of an art than a science, where you have to you have to figure out how do I get these people on my side? How do I convince them? How do I like make the case that it, it is in their interest to fight for something better? So, um, yes, sir. Left is poggers. I don't know. Is that like some zoomer talk that I don't know? I don't even know. I, the only pogs I know were the little, uh, cardboard round yeah, things the game. That, yeah. yeah discs. Um, that I used to collect for some reason. Um, don't know what that means. No, 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 but sure. <laughs> Um, here's another one that we just got in, um, another super chat that asks, do you think one way to push back against nationalism is to talk about how the globe is connected and we are all really part of one global community? Um, I think, oh, yeah, yeah, I I think that that there is some validity to that strategy, but specifically like. I think it's important to be very clear about what the goals of these right-wing nationalists are, because while they, like, let's say the America First stuff coming from the Trump campaign and all of that, it had a nationalistic message, but when you look at how it worked out in practice, they weren't trying to regulate corporations um, so they stop exploiting cheap labor abroad. They they certainly continued that practice. So what they do is try to make it seem as though they're looking out for the best interests of Americans. Uh, they want to shut down the borders. That's somehow going to increase jobs in the United States because immigrants can't come in and take your jobs. But the real problem is they're shipping your jobs abroad, right? And we are like it's a global economy at this point. So my argument isn't uh, to ignore the poor working conditions in other countries, the terrible pay for workers um, in other countries. But it's to draw attention to the fact that these nationalists very much like that system, want to keep that system in place, and do not want to do 
you know, any of what Ronan mentioned in the interview that we just had, right? They, they have no interest in ensuring that um, there's more power amongst workers uh, in order for them to be able to control their working conditions, their pay and all of that. So um, I think calling them out on the lies is an important part of this. Yeah, and I think that um, this idea of a of a global community—I mean, it, like it—it it kind of it kind of got turned into like a little bit of a hippy dippy kumbaya type situation. But it was it was a central um, tactic uh, of you know the when the left kind of came into power in the late nineteenth century, nineteenth century and early twentieth century, and and kind of became aware of itself in a way, um, and it was like that was a central plank of, you know, that that workers around the world have more in common with each other than with uh, the bosses in their own country. Like that was that was a central um, aspect of any organizational effort um, on the left for a long time, and I think that part of the problem with um, the rise of identity politics um, is that it undermines that effort. <laughs> you know, that a, a politics that emphasizes our differences um, rather than our common humanity is fundamentally anti-solidaristic and only plays into the hands of nationalists and capitalists who would want us to want to keep us divided, um, you know, on, on, on some basic strategic level, which isn't to say you deny differences between cultures and, and, and countries and things like that, but you, you, there is also some beauty to uh, emphasizing shared humanity um, that we all kind of are, that we all are part of this, um, you know, organism that, you know, emerged out of the primordial soup uh, and, uh, you know, struggles with our own kind of um, fear of mortality, existential crises, all that stuff uh, that is that is a shared human thing and that we have more power if we bond together and um and and realize our common humanity than if we kind of obsess over litigating our differences um so yeah right and that's the only thing i would add to that is you know we want uh working class internationalism that's the global community it's the global working class We do want divisions, like we, because there are in fact divisions. We want to. It's not that we want them. They there are divisions, and we want to make our politics fall on those divisions, so that working people across the world are fighting for their interests in solidarity, in common with one another against uh, global capital elites. Um, so, yeah, um, and then I guess there's there's one last super chat I'll throw in. It's more of a comment than a question. Um, and I have thoughts on it. Um, we appreciate the super chat. Um, and Kambizi says the West is on thin ice discussing social right of Latin America when colonialism eradicated indigenous cultures that carried ideas of gender fluidity as they prop the worst of them on the right today. Um, I would just to what I just said a moment ago, just, just kind of bring it back into this. I mean, again, I, I don't find really any use in this idea of, the West, because there is no such thing as a homogenous group called the West in the same way that there isn't a homogenous group called the East, or there isn't an Oriental or an Occident or whatever. These are, these are frame, these are terms within essentially racist frameworks that um, puts people uh, that have very different interests all into the same bubble. And it ends up uh, helping elites uh, get away with what they get away with because 
thing is the vast majority of the people that are in the West, uh, and I believe, you know, typically that's supposed to be in like Europe and, and the US, um, are working class people. Sometimes. Yeah, I know. The, the terms are kind Which of so not, funny. Yeah, I don't know. They're just not very useful. But the vast majority of them are working class people that have not only played no part in, for instance, colonialism, which is an obvious, it's one of the worst historical evils of all time. Uh, they didn't benefit from it because, and this is, we're seeing like the worst aspects of this now today where uh, through globalization and globalization, it's considered a recent phenomenon, but it's just the fact that, you know, trade is global and competition is global, that capitalists across the world are competing with one another. And uh, it means that workers across the world are being screwed over, that a, a worker in Detroit is getting screwed over because a worker in Bangladesh is being screwed over. And uh, it's, it's in the end, again, it's the elites that benefit from this. So, um, yeah, colonialism is, is horrible and evil. And you're right to say that. Um, and it, it certainly has eroded a great number of um, regional and uh, um, you know, indigenous uh, cultures, but that's what capitalism is. It's, it negatively selects against those things that uh, uh, are not um, compatible with it. So, you know, if you have a religion that says, yeah, I, I, uh, I don't work uh, five days a week. I spend that time praying. I'm just making something up. This isn't, I don't know, but like you have a religion that, that says that capitalism is going to say, no, you're not, we're not keeping that because uh, your livelihood is now based on what we say because we own all your shit and you got to show up to work tomorrow. Otherwise you starve and die. Um, whereas if you have a religion, um, say like Protestantism, uh, which is, you know, uh, you know, how to, how to be a good individual. Um, it's very compatible with capitalism. It doesn't cause capitalism as Weber and others might say, but it's, it's totally useful and compatible with capitalism <laughs> because <laughs> shut the fuck up. Kale. Just shut the fuck up. <laughs> fuck up. <laughs> okay. But capitalism selects against those things that are not compatible. Weber's wrong on the up. Protestant uh, ethic or whatever. Oh, he's he's... Very, just, you owned him, dude. Owned him. Owned him. <laughs> But anyways, it's it's capitalism and capitalists that are the problem. It's not the West. It's not Europeans. It's not white people. It's not Americans. It is the capitalist class that is carrying out 99.9% of all of this horrific shit that we have to deal with. Yeah. It's half half American, half Argentine, <laughs> cishet males living in, in the East uh, Village that are... That's the real problem. They're, they're the half Latinx, half white... <laughs> Um, that's who the main enemy is. <laughs> Just uh, defending my people, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is um, yeah, it's a little self-preservation, I guess. Um, yeah. One that I'll just throw this one on screen. LJ also another comment, I guess. Placing indigenous people into class structures another form of colonialization. There uh, you go, Kale. You're just doing. You're doing. You did a colonial. Yeah, doing a colonialism. Yeah, but that's like that. I mean. Colonialism have um, this is okay. We're not. We don't have time to do this. <laughs> like colonialism. Yeah, dude, I'm hungry. I gotta go to lunch, dude. It's twelve oh seven. All right, we'll do. We'll talk about colonialism more. There's As Weber say. says, uh, it's twelve oh seven, and I gotta go to lunch. Yeah, where are your kids? Um, all right, whatever. We'll we'll do more colonialism. Sorry, I like I came on right at the end to get real heated about this. 
<laughs> but there you go. All right, I'll I'll dip out. Someone ask about nuclear policy and see and see how long the show. Oh my goes. god! All <laughs> right, thanks, Kay. Right. Bye, guys. <laughs> All right. Um, the show was such a wild ride today, wild uh, ride. but I hope you guys got something out of it. I hope you guys enjoyed it, and um, you know, uh, we will obviously be here next week with another episode. But I just want to encourage you guys to subscribe if you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel yet, and uh, please like and share this video. That will really help with the algorithm, and of course. Uh, if you aren't subscribed to Jacobin's fantastic magazine yet, I don't know what you're thinking. You're really, really missing out. So please do that as well. You can go to uh, Jacobin's website. That's the latest um, issue, which the covers, every every time they come out with um, a new magazine, the covers get better and better. It's amazing. I, I like the back um, cover so- quotes usually. They're always really funny. Like this one from Nixon. The Ivy League presidents, why I'll never let one of those sons of bitches in the White House again. (laughs) (laughs) So good. So good. Anyway, everyone, thank you so much for watching. We love you and we'll see you next week.